You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, good morning. If you are visiting us uh, for the first time, or maybe this is just one of your first times, uh, we're glad that you're here. Welcome to Citizens Church. Um, I've been away from speaking here for the last four weeks, so if you haven't been here, I haven't been here either. And, uh, but I do know that you have been well served by uh, various teachers that were here. Uh, last week, Kirk Durston was here. Harold Paisley shared with us. Chris Koenig was here. And Scott Steen was a guest speaker as well. And I was listening to all of them on the podcast and kind of keeping track and just hearing and, and just knowing that you guys who were here had some great teaching. And if you wondered, you know, did they pick the Psalms in the summer just because that's an easy, you know, book to teach through? Um, nobody's around anyways, and people that are here are all, you know, just waiting to go to the sun. So just pick an easy book to teach. That is not why we pick the Psalms, okay? And if you look or if you listen to those sermons over the last month alone, they were filled with um, great teaching and challenging and thought-provoking truths from the Word of God. And this Sunday is no different. So if you have a a Bible with you or the phone app, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 35. It was a long one. Thank you for reading it, Rachel. It's a long psalm, but it takes us into um, deep waters again. David is going to get us to think about What is the impact of evil and suffering in the world around us and in your life? A few years ago, uh, I went to my barber. And it wasn't my barber in town here because I know half the guys in our church get their hair cut at the same place in town. It wasn't here in town, okay? This Elmira is a small town, so... It wasn't there, but I went to this barber, and I had gone to him for a number of years, and I loved going because he was an old guy. He was like, I don't know, I won't give an age. He was an old guy, and he had been cutting hair for a long time, you know, like 40 years, and he just did a great job, and we used to have great conversations. We loved to talk about music and art and architecture, you know, everything related to those things, and he was never in a rush. You know, he just kind of cut my hair and chat. Mostly we didn't go into like really deep topics because, I mean, you're in a hair salon. There's all kinds of people around. There's just a lot of activity. But I can remember one time specifically where he started talking about an incident in his life where uh, a young child that he knew really well, that was actually a part of his family, had been suffering from cancer and had eventually died from it. And he said something that has stuck with me ever since. He kind of leaned over, and like he always did when he was about to say something that he was really, uh, that he thought was really important, he would kind of lean his arm on my shoulder, and he looked at me through the mirror, and he said, I could never believe in a God who would let that happen. And I was sitting there, and those words just kind of stuck in my head. And they felt very honest and very real. David in our psalm today, in Psalm 35, and maybe you caught it as it was being read, 
is asking God, how is evil and suffering coming into contact with my life? And how am I supposed to believe in a God who allows these things to happen? And so this morning, what we're going to do is look at this problem of evil in our world briefly and then see what does this psalm give us as believers in Christ to, to do in response to that very thing as we touch it. So I'm not going to read all portions of the psalm because it's really long, but listen to some of David's language here of his own experience in this psalm. And I have them listed up here because we're kind of jumping around here. Verse 7 says this, For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. Verse 15 says, But at my stumbling they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. David is saying, how is this happening to me? How is evil and suffering coming into my life, into my world? And evil and suffering is a very real problem that all of us face. Ronald Nash, who is a professor and an apologist, puts it this way. Every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism was and is and will continue to be the problem of evil. You see, every single one of us has experiences with evil and suffering in our lives. And we live in a world, this planet that is filled with billions of people, that is continually producing new and small and huge types of suffering. And we happen to live in an era, you know, that is inundated with the information of the suffering and the plight of people around us. So, you know, in the last 100 years, we've gone from the radio to the television to the, you know, constant cable news and then we went to the internet, and now we live in the age where we have our phones in our pockets, and we are connected pretty much all the time. And we have access then to as much as we want to see the suffering of people around. And even if you're not a news person, you're seeing it on social media threads or somewhere around you, this constant barrage of suffering and evil going on in the world around us. So even this week, you may have seen, or maybe you didn't see, a typhoon hitting in Asia and specifically hitting China. And there was massive floods. You know, these roads were turning into rivers. And on the news, at least, they said at least 20 people were killed as a result of these floods. And uh, scores more are still missing. These are not people who were out committing murders. These are not people that were out, you know, robbing a bank or something. These are regular people like you and I going to work, going to school, in their homes, and bang, a flood hits. How do we process that? Like, what do we do with just that one story going on around the world in 
thousands and thousands of different ways. But what David is getting at here in Psalm 35 is one step closer inside. Because David here is not talking about some global problem. He, he could have. He's not talking about some sort of regional skirmish that's going on. He is talking about his very life. The things that are happening to him. And that's often where suffering actually hits us at a deeper level. Something happens to us. Someone we love. Someone we know. Someone we interact with hurts us in some way. So that evil and suffering touches us on a personal level. So David is supposed to be the king of Israel. He's supposed to be the anointed one. He's supposed to lead his people. And what does he say? They, they're coming after me. Why are these things not coming to be, God? All these promises. All I'm receiving in this moment is pain and suffering and the evil of others on my life. And for us to process the pain that happens to us is not something that we can just brush off, but it's something that takes time. It usually takes uh, conversation. Sometimes it takes even going to a counselor or someone we love, like a friend, uh, to be able to process, you know, this difficult thing that has happened to us. Now, if you're a Christian, if you believe in the message of the Scriptures, the Bible actually tells us the origin of sin, suffering, and evil. In Genesis, a story that many of us are familiar with, it tells us that God creates the world. God makes a perfect world. And in that world, he creates mankind, men and women, to be in relationship with him. So this is not just some sort of, you know, experiment that he is doing so that he can watch exist, but he is a relational God who makes relational people. And out of love, he says, I want Adam and Eve and their offspring to choose to love me. They're not going to be robots. They're not just going to have a pre-planned life. They're going to choose to love me. So he puts in the garden, actually, a tree where he says, don't eat that fruit. And by saying don't eat that fruit, he's saying, Adam and Eve, I want you to choose to trust me, to choose to love me, because you were made to be in relationship with me. And we know from the story, or maybe you don't know, that Adam and Eve choose to distrust God. They choose their own way. In, in that moment, they choose the fruit. They choose to go against God. They choose against love. And the result of that then is brokenness enters into our world. Sin, evil, suffering, all these things come and affect every single human. And they don't just kind of like ease into it. The story goes on in chapter 4 that they have children and the story of Cain and Abel presents itself where Cain ends up killing Abel. So there's no like, hey, this goodness from the garden is going to kind of hang on, it's going to linger. No, evil and suffering and pain comes on the scene instantly because it is a weight that affects every single person. So, again, what do we do with the problem of evil? Those who have not put their trust in Christ, those who are not Christians, they would, in, in many cases, 
This is the proof that God does not exist. They would deny that God exists. Reason for not actually believing in God. And it, it makes sense in many ways. Because evil is existing, and yet you say there is this perfect, loving, all-powerful God. So how do those things fit together? Why would a perfect, loving God not put his protective hand over all evil? I just, that doesn't make sense. They don't reconcile. And so the result then is many people say, God cannot exist. Others would say, no, what we need is a different or a better story that's actually going to make sense of the evil that is around us. So there's all kinds of worldviews out there that help explain or give reasons to the evil that exists around us. Maybe it's Eastern philosophy, which says, man, this is just karma. What goes around comes around. Or maybe it's like a Buddhist mindset, which says, you know, it's just a, you know, it's an invisible force out there. It's just a figment of our imagination. It is an illusion. And so desire is causing these things, decreased desire, and then suffering kind of becomes a non-issue. Or maybe it is a just purely evolutionary, matter is all that matters. You know, we are all just stardust. And in a billion, billion years, nobody will know that we were here. Nobody will know that you had pain and suffering. It's just cold. This is what it is. Our question here this morning and what David is going to help us to think about is, what is our response as believers, as Christians, living in a world that is filled with suffering and evil and pain? How are we to respond? David is not going to give an exhaustive answer, give every reason here, but we're going to focus on two things, okay? So this isn't even a three-point sermon, okay? We're like two things. That's all we're going to look at, okay? And the first is this. David says, the first thing we are called to do is to pray. We are called to pray, but with a certain kind of prayer. Pray with honesty. Pray with honesty. Now here's the challenge. Here is the thing that many of us get hung on. We get kind of tripped up over this, is religious people, us included, are really good at faking it. We are really good at kind of putting it on so that it looks like everything is going great, you know? I got a collared shirt on. I don't wear a collared shirt on Tuesday. So, you know, I'm like dressing it up and just playing the part. Somehow, religion has a way of forcing us or, or getting us to, to put on airs or shows when the reality of our day or possibly the reality of our week is that it's been a terrible week. It's been filled with all kinds of trouble. It's been filled with all kinds of choices that I have made that would not please God, that would not please others. And so the easiest thing to do in our minds, rather than face the, the shame or the guilt, or rather than face the embarrassment, is to just cover it up. Just put on the smile. And so David here is, is going to challenge us to learn to put on a mindset of honest prayer first to God. 
We may think that's the easiest one because those are the prayers that we can just say in our minds and in our, you know, in our heads, in our hearts. But David says, firstly, 19, let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. Then verse 22, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. David is saying here, He's asking God, saying, God, are you going to let them do this to me? He is pouring out his, like the inside thoughts, the things that he is thinking are who you say you are. You're just going to let them do these things to me? You're just going to let this injustice happen? And he just pours it out. It's about the fundamental biblical conviction that in prayer we may say everything. Literally everything. If only we say it to God who is our... In prayer, the very things that we are feeling, whether they're right or wrong, the very things that we are feeling, we can say this thing happen. God, why are you not resolving this thing in my life? We can say the things that we feel the deepest, the things that have hurt us the most. We tell those to God in all honesty. Now, Christianity is sometimes uh, accused of being, you know, super rigid. It's just all, it's a bunch of rules. It's just, it's a control mechanism. That's what a lot of people say about Christianity. And, and religion is often that way. And parts of Christianity are lumped into that, where people are just trying to control you. But here we see, look at what Psalm 35 is saying. You can talk to God like you don't talk to almost anybody else. So if you go and talk to your boss, the one who has the power to fire you, you're probably going to be like polite. You know, you're, you're not going to like let it all loose unless you want to be fired. You know, you're just going to, you're going to govern how you talk to them. If you speak your mind in society, if you just say whatever you wanted to say, you post it on whatever, Instagram, Twitter, you just say, you go up to CBC Radio, you just say whatever you want to say, yeah, you're going to get what we called canceled, right? Or something is, you know, you're like, here, the God of the universe, the one who holds, Colossians says, he holds everything together. Your body is held together because of him. Your heart that you have no control over is beating because of him. You can say whatever you want to that God. And he doesn't in that moment just like obliterate you. David is speaking his mind to God. And, and these verses within here, there's not a full psalm that is called this, but these verses within here have a theological title. They are called imprecatory psalms. Okay, that's the theological word for it, imprecatory psalms. These are psalms where David or other authors just let loose. 
So listen to some of these verses from this psalm. It says in verse 4, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his own destruction. So David is saying, this is what I want, God. Just get them. The people that are hurting me, just lay it on them. The, the message does a great job of kind of capturing this. The message is a paraphrase. It says this, harass these hecklers, God. Punch these bullies in the nose. Grab a weapon, anything at hand. Stand up for me. Get ready to throw the spear, aim the javelin at the people who are out to get me. Reassure me. Let me hear you say it. I'll save you. So David, in, in an imprecatory psalm, is hurling these like suggestions to God. And that's what it is. It's to give a curse out. Now, that seems to be at odd with what Jesus is all about. You know, you're like, how does imprecatory psalms and Jesus line up? It seems like they are missing each other completely because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're familiar with that one. You know, where Jesus says, man, someone does something bad against you. What you should do is pray for them, you know, love them. And yet here, David is like, Punch these guys in the nose. Take them down. The imprecatory psalms are not meant to be uh, thou shalt commandments. They're, they're not meant to be uh, something that we just like, application is go outside and punch someone in the nose. Okay, that's, that's not what these psalms are meant to be. These psalms are meant to be raw honesty to God. And trust in who he is. Because for us as humans, we tend to get anger wrong. We're often on either side of the ditch. Either we're, we're angry people and we're harsh or we're aggressive towards people. We're that kind of angry. Or maybe we're the other side angry where we kind of pretend that it's not happening and we just shove it down. That's the side I'm on, right? I'm like, just shove it down, ignore it, don't say anything. Eventually it'll wear away. That's wrong as well. Either side is wrong. But here, we are shown an example where we can actually let it loose. And maybe sometimes we don't even know what to do. I remember when, when we were in the midst of COVID, when we were going through all that and those lockdown times, we kind of had this joke as a family where it's like, if you've reached like your peak, you're just like, you can't take it anymore of your own people, you know, your own family. We were just like, go scream in a pillow or something, you know, like grab a pillow, put it to your face and just scream. It was kind of like a, a joke of get your aggression out if you don't know how to handle it. David here is getting out his anger. He is honest. Tremper Longman says it this way, the imprecations are not just expressions of anger. They allow us to turn our anger over to God for him to act as he sees fit. So what we're being given in this psalm is a view of the anger that we have. 
expressed back to God who can rightly actually live out anger. Because, I don't know if you knew this, but God gets angry. Anger is a part of who God is. But here's the difference. God doesn't fall in either ditch. God knows how to vet anger perfectly. With perfect justice and perfect love, he is able to hold it all together. We don't. We fall on either side. God holds it together perfectly. So when David is spewing out his anger to God, he's actually giving this over to him. This act of honesty is giving it back to God. Eric Zenger, one more time, puts it this way. Such speech, these imprecatory psalms, are an act of faith that God in the end will prevail over evil and those who do evil. That's what David is saying in his honest words. He's saying, God, you can do this. God, you work out your justice and your anger in just the right way. And David is like, my suggestion is kick their teeth in. It's just a suggestion, God. You know, that's what David is saying. He's like, that's my idea. But in the end, he's saying, you do it, God. I'm just telling you honestly what is on my heart. But God, you be the one to act out justly and act out your anger in love. So first, we process evil by honest prayer. And second, we process evil by trusting in God, and specifically again, trusting in the provision of God. The, the theological word for that is providence. So there is sovereignty where God is in control of all things because he is God by definition. But then there's also providence, which means the protected provision of God. So that God is actually actively providing in the world that we live in. So as a, as a dad, when my kids were younger, uh, in those toddler years, which are past now for me, I used to go to the park with them. And part of what I was doing in the park was um, having fun with them a little bit, you know. But I wasn't there just to have fun. I'm not like, like the kids and I'm just playing on all the swings with them. Part of what I was doing was protecting them so they don't get hurt or they don't like kill themselves and make some sort of, you know, really, really poor choice. I'm a dad. I'm supposed to be there and watch and care for them. But I am human and so I'm limited. I'm, you know, really focusing hard. I had three kids, so I'm just trying to focus on those three. David here in this psalm is reminding us that we put our trust in a God who works providentially. God is able to provide for us, for all of us, in the midst of all the chaos and the evil and the suffering that goes on around us and that touches our lives personally. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, in them, that's these imprecatory psalms, specifically Psalm 35, in them, passion for God is aflame. In the midst of the ashes of doubt about God and despair over human beings, these psalms are the expression of a longing that evil and evil people may not have the last word in history. For this world and its history belong to God. Psalm 35 is reminding us that God ultimately is in control. And when we say what we're feeling to him, we are 
Through our words and through our actions, we are trusting that he has his way. And so the New Testament actually reinforces this for us. The New Testament affirms what David is trying to get us to think about. Romans chapter 12, where Paul has explained the gospel in the first 11 chapters. Then in in chapter 12, he gets practical and he tells us how to live these things out. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 19 says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why does Paul start the verse this way? Why does he say, Repay no one evil for evil? Because Paul knows that every single one of us are deeply affected by sin that lives in this world. And so our natural inclination, probably our first response when evil is done to us, is to give back evil. And maybe even, if we have our way, give back evil plus some, so that we're on the upper end of it. Paul here is saying, listen, something has completely changed for the believer. Christ has come. Jesus has come. He was God who became a man. And he lived a perfect life. And his life ended with him on the cross for the sins of the world. But he didn't stay there. He rose from the dead to new life. And so Paul's saying, You are new people now. When you put your faith and your trust in God, a newness comes into your life. So the natural inclination to give evil, to to give suffering back to someone, is no longer the road that we travel. He says, verse 19 again, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Let God work out his justice. Give it to him. He will do it rightly. And this is the road that we are to follow. He says, don't trust in your own anger. Even if it sometimes works. Maybe some of us have experienced that where, man, when I get angry, people listen a little bit more. When I get angry, things get done. You know, like I knock a few heads and just, this is business. We just do it. Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You have a new life. You have a new way of living. Your way of living now is to trust in God. Now, this may include action, where you actually do something, where God uses you to kind of accomplish his purposes, but ultimately we are trusting in God to have his way. Finally, Peter gives us the greatest example of this, which is in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Paul is kind of getting us to think about the, you know, the rational outworkings of the gospel. Peter says, this is what Jesus did. Here's what you are to follow. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter is saying, this is the road you are to walk. Follow Jesus' footsteps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So, Jesus committed so, no sin. We can't do that, okay? So, that's Jesus' part. So, what can we do? He did the end of verse 23 here. This is what we can walk into. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says, this is our calling as believers. That we follow Jesus' example. When wrong comes our way, when evil comes our way, when we want to give evil back, he says we are to entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly. So, from Psalm 39, it encourages us to vent our anger to God, to be honest to him, scream into the pillow if you have to, tell God all the things that you are feeling and all the things that you are experiencing. And then, as a part of that process, is actively put your trust in him, put your trust in his provision for your life. One day we know that everything that is wrong in the world, everything that is connected to sin will be undone, will be completely undone. And we get a small glimpse of it in the Gospels when Jesus raises from the dead. He goes back and we see that he interacts with the disciples and they see Jesus in the flesh. Just hours before, they had seen him hanging on a cross. Their, their worst nightmare was coming through before their eyes. And now they see their, their greatest dream standing before them. And in that moment, it says that they actually are overjoyed and they're dismayed. And this is the world that we live in. As we're honest with God, as we trust in him, we experience the, the joy and the reality of his resurrection, and yet we still experience this longing for the totality of his justice to come. And he says, in the midst of that tension, keep hanging on to trust. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. Thank you for the honesty from David and Lord, I, I just pray for each of us here this morning that whichever aspect, be it the honesty or the trusting, Lord, wherever we fall short, and we all do, God, would you strengthen us today? Would you teach us more what it means to live in this world of brokenness and evil and sin with a heart that is reaching out to trust in you. And, and God, thank you for being faithful in our lives today. And we long for you to be present here in your, the totality of your justice and love. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.